So by way of official introduction again, I'm Professor Sean Sams from Valor Christian College in Canal Winchester. Um, I love the Bible. I love the Word. Um, so I hope that you do too. If you find yourself in here, you want to learn something about the Word. So uh, what are you hoping to get in our brief 40, 45 minutes together? Nothing? At all? Okay. Learning more how to get my Bible study together, and I have one where I'm at now, and I'm getting ready to leave to go to a, my new apartment, and I want to start one there, so I want to learn more how to get it going. Okay. Well, there's going to be good touch points there. So I'm not going to actually go into like how to build a Bible study so much as actually how to read and interpret Scripture correctly. But since you're going to get those tools, you're just going to wow everybody, and they're going to say, how do you know so much? And they're going to want to come to it. So, um, so I put a couple of words up here just to begin with. Uh, anytime you're looking into a class on Bible study methods, the technical term would be uh, hermeneutics, about interpretation. How do you go about interpretation? What is your approach that you take What's the way in which you come to Scripture to get things from it? Um, I don't know if you have your Word. Hopefully you have your Word with you. If not, a Bible uh, on your phone or iPad or iPod or whatever you have here. If not, just write down the verses and point out a couple things interesting here. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is resurrected. And he's on the road to Emmaus and he has a conversation with a couple people. They're having a conversation. He interrupts. Hey, what are you guys talking about? He said, you don't know what's just happened here recently? No, why don't you guys tell me? Why don't you fill me in? And they're, as they're having this conversation, in verse 24, they're saying, Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him, Jesus, they didn't see. And he says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, if you jump over just a bit to uh, verse 32, they go on, Jesus, uh, and they say, they said this to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the scriptures? So both the interpretation and both the opening up, the Greek word is hermeneuo, which has to do with interpretation. He's helping them figure out, here's the details you need to look at. Here's how you need to see that they come together in order that you can get the revelation that you're hoping for. The one thing that I hear most often from people, especially my students when they start, I start each semester that we do Bible study methods, and I'll say, okay, welcome to the most important class that you're going to take here at Bible College. You've got to get that foundation set on how to read and interpret properly, because that's going to affect your theology, what you believe. Because if you're reading it incorrectly, and if you're taking things out of context, and thinking it means something that it doesn't mean then your whole theology gets off. So you view Jesus wrong. You view, view the Father wrong. You view the Holy Spirit wrong. And what God is doing in the world today. So I always let them know this is the most important class that you guys are taking. Uh, connected to that, what we need to address really quick, eisegesis versus exegesis. Eisegesis has to do with reading into the text things. And that's unfortunately what so many people do inadvertently because we open up Scripture and we're trying to get things, but we read into it ideas, and we don't want to do that. That's the bad one. You don't want to do eisegesis. What you want to do is exegesis. From the Greek word ex, meaning out of, where we get the exodus, the outgoing from Egypt, that we want to get into Scripture, and we want to draw out of it what God has for us. So we understand what it's actually saying, pull that out, have our lives changed by it, so then we can then present it to others appropriately. Now, the challenge is, we all have pre-understanding. We all come from different backgrounds and life experiences and family and schooling and different things that we've heard over the years. And so we all have pre-understanding, so when we come to Scripture, none of us can come to Scripture unbiased. We just have to learn to put our biases aside to the best that we can, come fresh with open eyes, say, okay, God, what are you revealing to me at this moment? Now, pre-understanding isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can be a good thing because it gives us a frame of reference to work with. So if someone was a firefighter, any firefighters in here? No. Okay. I never get any firefighters. Okay. So if you're a firefighter and you're reading scriptures, uh, passages about fire, 
and God being an all-consuming fire about the lake of fire, the eternal fire. A firefighter is going to know more things about the properties of fire that they are going to be able to glean from the text. Now, Scripture is saying something specific about fire, but they can add to the conversation, right? And they can say, well, here's something you need to know about fire. Fire will either destroy things and burn it up, or it will solidify things and make it more solid. So they add something and help us glean a little bit more about what the Scripture might be saying. So Scripture is very much like a diamond. Depending on how you're refracting the light from it, you're going to be able to glean different things from it. Now, as we come with pre-understanding, again, we don't want to have it dictate to us what Scripture is saying. We want Scripture to speak to us and help change our perspective and change our mindsets on what it's actually saying. So you'll glean something from it, and then once you have that, the next time you go back to Scripture again, you're able to use that insight and you're going to see something new. And then you're going to get something new then, and then you're going to go back again, you're going to get something again. So it's what's called, in technical terms, this hermeneutical spiral. You got something, and you learn something, and you just keep adding to it, and it keeps opening up Scripture more and more and more and more to you as you keep learning and gleaning and sharing amongst the body of believers as we keep finding things. You go to sermons, and you listen to pastors, and you just keep getting bits and pieces. It just helps you as you go along. Now, let's go through some basic tools and techniques. Number one, obviously pray. That is the best thing you can absolutely do. Pray. Ask God to give you insight. Okay. He authored it. So scripture says that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, and for instruction and whatnot. That, that Greek word there, theonustis, is that it is literally breathed out by God. And it's such an incredible picture because of who God is as spirit. The Hebrew word ruach means spirit, breath, or wind. So I'll tell my classes, there's this incredible picture between his breath and his word. They're always working together, and you can't separate the two. You see, God will have a thought. He has an idea of what he wants to do. Just go back to the creation when there's nothing, and he's going to bring creation into being. He has a thought about what he wants to do, but it doesn't become something until he then speaks it. That's why there's importance upon the word and why it's always foundational for us. Because if it just remains a thought, it never becomes anything. So he has the thought, he knows what he wants to do, it'll be good, and now he has to engage his heart. Or as we see in Scripture, the idea of heart is your will, it's your emotions, your, your, your volition that causes you to act. It's not just emotion in the way that we sometimes think here in the West, about what you just feel. It's about your volition and your intentionality and what you do. So God will think about it, and then he'll engage his heart that I'm actually going to go forward with this and I'm going to do it. But then he has to open up his mouth and he'll speak it. So when the word goes forth, it's creating parameters. It's creating structure for us to understand things. But see, the word doesn't go forth unless you release breath. Same thing for each of us. If you want to get a word out, you're going to have to carry it forth with breath. So God has a word. When you, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And he speaks it or he releases his breath or his spirit. So the Spirit of God, the energizing power force of God, will couple with the Word, and so the Spirit and the Word come together, and they manifest something in that very moment. And if you can catch that right off the bat, it just, it, it's, it's dynamic how you understand who God is and what He's doing. Why He did everything according to His Word. He places importance on that. Not upon His hands, not upon His feet, not upon what He's doing and forming and fashioning this way, but upon what He says is our foundation. Everything in Scripture that we're supposed to see about as it relates to God and us and relationship has to do with speaking and listening and being obedient as it relates to the Word. So what was the parameter for Adam in the garden? Don't eat of that tree. It was a Word. It was instruction. And he would show himself whether faithful or not if he listened or not. And that's the basis for righteousness, which we're actually going to get to in a bit. But praying, praying. Obviously, we're open up to God and say, God, help us in this journey because your word is God breathed. It's you in each word and each page. Help us to see what you have for us. Now, with that being said, a lot of people just believe that they can just come to scripture, just open up and just pray about it. And God's just going to drop stuff into them. That's not how it works. I'll get my students who write papers all the time and they just come up with some fanciful idea and, and say, well, where did you get this? And they'll be like, divine revelation. I was up at like two in the morning. So, okay, that's probably a problem right there, two in the morning. <laughs> you know. 
how do you know? What are the parameters that you, that you didn't just make that up yourself? Or it was all the caffeine you were hyped up on or the pizza that you ate. How do you know the interpretation is correct? Is it just based on feelings? Well, I just felt it was. God, you know, put it on my heart that it was. Well, there's lots of people that believe lots of things just because it's on their heart, but it's not right. So how do we know? We'll get to that. We don't want to overly spiritualize things. Another second piece of the puzzle is slow down. Also, slow down. There's so many little details that we just blow over because we think the whole point is that God wants us to get in the Word, you know, and we got our five-minute, ten-minute devotional. We started our morning first thing. That's what God wants. Obviously, He wants to spend time with us. He wants to have that devotional time, but we treat it as just like a to-do that we check mark off. Oh, got my devotional done. I'm on to the next thing. God must have been happy with that, or I'll do it before bed, or whatever it is. Say, so would that fly with any other relationship that we have? For those that are married, you saw your husband or wife first thing in the morning, you're like, okay, I'm giving you two minutes. I'm out the door. I'm going to work, and I'll just see you at the end of the day. If there's no communication, if there's no ongoing dialogue or relationship, then what's the point? There's nothing there. That's why Jesus will tell people in the end, he says, you said, you know, you said, Lord, Lord, and, and, and I don't know you. That knowing, the Hebrew word yada, this, this intimate relationship that was shared between uh, this, this sexual union between a husband and a wife, that, that intimacy of knowing someone, and I don't know you, and you don't know me, therefore we're going our separate ways. So we've got to make sure that we're knowing him and known by him. So we'll slow down. We'll look at some of the details. Connected to that, you've got to be a good detective, Do detective work. So when you get into Scripture, you want to start looking for everything, all the pieces of the puzzle, and just start asking, what's going on here in the story? Why did this happen? Why did Jesus say this? Why did he do that? Why was their reaction that? Where is this happening? Why did he go up a mountain? Why was he in the temple? Why did he write on the ground with his finger? If there's any time at the end, and I don't know that, well, I'm going to try and get some really fun stuff in here. We'll say, uh, how those details pull out some really, really cool things. But like a fun one. So we see that Jesus, from time to time, will get in a boat, and then he will pull back, and he'll start teaching the people. Why does he get in a boat, and why does he pull back? It's practical. It's science. Any breaks, Phil? Nope. Nope. So usually he's got, what, two, 3,000 people or more usually gathering around him? Amplification. Amplification. Okay, they live in the day and age. There's no microphones. There's no electricity. He can't just shout for hours on end for people to hear. So he will pull himself out over the lake and speak over the water, which will amplify his voice for people to hear. Something as simple as that, just asking the question, why did he get in the boat? Or why does he walk on the water to get to his disciples? Very, again, it's practical, but we overthink it. We over-spiritualize so many things. We usually go to this in the West. We go, because he was proving he was God. No, that wasn't the point. He wasn't proving he was God at all. If you read Philippians chapter 2, Paul's making it very clear. You need to have this mindset in you that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped for, but he humbled himself, made himself empty, taking the form of man. And that's important for the overall picture and story of what God is doing, because everything Jesus does on this planet is 100% man. Is he 100% God? Absolutely he is, in his essence, in his identity, but he is not going to walk on this planet as God, because that's not the purpose for which God designed in the beginning. We'll get to this at the end about God's overall story. In the beginning, God places mankind on the planet over the planet and gives him stewardship with dominion and authority. He entrusts it to mankind. It's as if he takes the keys and he hands it over. He says, it's yours. Run it for me. Okay, he's sovereign over it because he still owns it, but he gives it to man to rule. Man will subjugate it by giving it over to Satan because he'd rather listen to what? Satan's voice as opposed to God's voice. And so that which you listen to is what you submit to is what you give your authority to. So he would rather listen to Satan than listen to God. So now the keys have been handed over. So God at that point cannot step in and say, well, that really shouldn't have happened. Okay, you didn't know any better. That's a bad voice. Let me take the keys back. Okay, because he had already made by his word the declaration of how it was going to come about. Man is going to rule the planet. 
So now he's got to fix the scenario within the parameters that he's already set up, which necessitates him coming as a man, 100%. Again, he's 100% divine because he can't cease to be. That's an impossibility. There's a little bit of theology, but God cannot cease to be. He is who he is. So he is that in his essence, but according to Philippians chapter 2, he will not operate that way. It's not, it's not as though he's doing this with a stacked deck. He is going to come as 100% man. Why? Because man was given authority, and we're supposed to see that he is the model. If he can do it, we can do a lot more than we realize we can do. But there's a key to him doing it. He doesn't just do it on his own. There's a key point in his ministry by which everything switches and it turns. And what point does it become activated? Which point does it become empowered? When he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So he comes to the Jordan, he's filled with the Holy Spirit in order that he has the power and the authority to lay down his will. Right? He gets in the garden. I don't know if I can do this. Oh, this is hard. This is, yeah, I know what the mission is, Father, but if there's any way, can we change the plan? What does he have to do? He has to lean in on the Spirit to put his will down. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So he's empowered. Hebrews tells us he offers himself through the Spirit. It's the Spirit that's empowering him to do the mission that he needs to do as man filled with the Spirit in the same way that in the beginning, Adam was man breathed into by the Spirit of God and filled with the Spirit of God. Now, all that has ramifications for how we understand our life today as people who need to be saved to come into relationship with God but then to be filled with his spirit, the same way that Jesus was, a spirit-filled, empowered life and ministry. So start asking a lot of questions. Look for repetition. I'm going to give you some basic, basic things that as you get into this, Scripture is going to start popping out to you. It's going to come alive to you. Repetition is really, really important because the ancient writers... They try to get the message across in specific ways that are not similar and identical to what we have today. We have lots of programs and things that we do on the computer, right, that can get your attention if you read it. You can change the font size. You can put a picture. You can put colors. You can underline. You can bold. You can, you know, you can do various different things to say this is important. Pay attention to this. Well, they don't have that. So generally what they'll do is they'll repeat things. So if you're in Isaiah and you've you've got Isaiah going into the temple and these declarations are being made, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now three is important. We'll talk about numbers in just a minute. But three in scripture represents something that's complete. Something that has a wholeness to it. God is what? Three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's complete. He's not lacking anything. So if you get a declaration of holy, 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 God is what? He is completely holy. He's not lacking anything. He's absolutely holy. Uh, Think about this. When John writes, John's very specific in his gospel when he's talking about important things that Jesus says. Now, everything that Jesus says is important. However, there are things that are pivotal and there are turning points that are supposed to get our attention. And John draws our attention to it by repeating something that Jesus says at the beginning. So your translation, depending on what you're reading, will either say, verily, verily, truly, truly, or maybe, amen, amen. That's how it is in the Greek. See, we put amen at the end, and Jesus puts it at the beginning. And he repeats it twice, and every time you see that in John's gospel, verily, verily, I say to you, or truly, truly, I say to you, it just qualitatively takes another step up. He said, this is going to be pivotal. Do not miss this. If you missed anything else I said... Do not miss this one. Kind of an interesting one in Matthew. You have to look closely. But in Matthew chapter 5, a favorite section by many with the Beatitudes. Jesus goes up the mountain. And Matthew wants to make sure that his readers do not miss what he's about to say. Because not only the Beatitudes, but the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, is just so pivotal for kingdom life and living that he says this, verse 2, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, again, if you went really quick, if you just blew right past that, you missed what he just did. Because he repeated something three times that he didn't have to. He says that Jesus opened his mouth, one, taught them, two, by saying... 
That's three times he put emphasis on the words that were coming out of his mouth. Why? He didn't want them to miss it. I can't make this any clearer for you guys. Pay attention to this. All he could have had to say was, and Jesus told them, or Jesus taught them. But he decides to emphasize it so they'll get it. How about in the creation narrative? As God is going through, we talked about he's speaking, it's the importance of his word, he's putting structure, he's laying a foundation. If you were to track all the times that God said something in that section between verse 1 and 31, does anyone know how many times he says something? And God said, let there be light, and God said, let there be this, that, and the other thing. Ten. Ten times that God says something. And we'll see that 10 has to do with structure in Scripture. Again, foreshadowing a little bit into numbers, but it has to do with structure. When God speaks by His Word and He starts putting parameters and structure in place, there shall be light. The waters can only go so far. There has to be land. There has to be these things. He's putting structure in place. And He does it through speaking, and He does it 10 times. He doesn't do it 11. He doesn't do it 15. He doesn't do it 20. He does it 10. That should be important. Because it's the very first thing you get in Scripture, and it's foreshadowing, because there's another ten that's coming that's really important. Come on, I know we're all good believers, so we know this, right? So God has another ten. What ten is that? Okay, the commandments, or if you look closely, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, says, And God spoke all these words. It doesn't say commandments. It's very specific. Why? Because God doesn't need to command. Anything he says, by virtue of him being the sovereign one, is a command to us. Whether it's sit down, go, pray for that person, whatever it is, it becomes a divine imperative, a command. But God is not sitting on the throne as though he's a petulant father just being stomping his feet and commanding us things. He instructs with his word because there's power in his word. And so he will intend declarations to his people, start putting structure in place for them. Here's what you do. You have no other gods before me, and you don't have any idols. You don't make any images because I've already made an image in the world, and that's you. You're the image. It's not the image's job to make an image of me. It's your job to be the image. There's already an image. There's no more idols that are needed. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. And he's putting parameters in place for them. So they have purpose. They have identity. And then you get into the story a little bit after he gives that to them at Mount Sinai. And they're processing through the wilderness. And they're having a hard time trying to to work through what God is saying. And then Moses will tell them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He goes, did you not know that when he was leading you through the wilderness, he was testing you to see if you would be obedient to his words? Because his words are life. And he's prepping them. He's preparing his people to have a purpose and identity in life. But as they go through the wilderness, right, they don't want to listen very much. They're like, you're trying to kill us. He says, no, I'm not. I have a purpose for you. I'm going to get you somewhere. I've got purpose and identity for you. No, you're trying to starve us out here. Okay, here's some manna. They're not happy with that. You're trying to dehydrate and kill us. All right, here's water from a rock. Twice. Right? No, we're still hungry again. All right, here's some quail and more manna. And God keeps showing them every time they need of something that he provides it because he's good. But they don't pick up with that. So then they process to the end of the wilderness and they're ready to go into the promised land. They cross over. He says, send the spies in. See that I am good. Just like I said, they go in, they see the land. It's just like he said, flowing with milk and honey. And they go and they get some of the fruit, right? And they say it's so big that they have to carry it on a pike between them as they carry it on out. So they've stepped into the promise and they're touching it and holding it and eating it. And then they go back to the people. And what do they do? They give a bad report. Look how awesome the food is. And they're like, oh, that's great. Let's go in. They say, well, we can't really go in there because there's giants in the land and they're going to kill us. So really what it is, I think God brought us all the way out here to get us into the land just so he can kill us. So how about this? Let's go get another leader. We're going to get rid of Moses. Why don't we go back to slavery? You're standing in the promise with the blessings of God and you're eating it and you're tasting it. And you want to go back into slavery? So God says something specific. He says, he says come here, we're, we're going to have a conversation here. Because you've spoken against me these, and, if you, and God is very specific, ten times, you're not getting in the land. 
See, God spoke 10 words of life in the beginning to put purpose in place. He speaks 10 words of life at Mount Sinai for the people. And the people spoke 10 words of death continually. Every time God did something, it was, you're trying to kill us, you're trying to kill us, you're trying to kill us, you're trying to kill us. So it was on the 10th infraction that God says, you're not getting in. You want death so much? You got a fixation on death so bad? You're going to die in the wilderness. And they did for the first generation. He waited for a faithful generation to come up. All right. Boy, I got to keep us on track. I'm going into theology here, but. Uh, Biblical definition of words. Know the definition of words. Words are important, words hold meaning. We throw a lot of words around. Especially in the church, we use a whole bunch of big things. Justification, regeneration, sanctification, glorification. Half the time, most people don't even know what we're talking about. So we want to be clear. We want to know it. So how about worship? Worship is simply attributing worth to something. That which you give your time, that which you give your attention, that which you give your passion to is what you worship. It doesn't mean singing. Singing is a way in which you can then show worth to something. How about your time, your money, what you invest in? So when we tell, you know, we make the statement that people are worshiping their car, they're worshiping a relationship, or they're worshiping things, they go, what are you talking about? I don't worship my car. Well, you put all your time, your energy, and your money in it. You're, you're hoping no one scratches it. You know, no one can touch it. You don't want anyone to ride in it, anything like that. You're putting it, and you're elevating it up on a pedestal, and you're putting a lot of worth in it. Again, God doesn't have a problem with things and us having things or nice things, but it's what we do and where is our heart orientation towards it. So worship is to show worth towards something. Holy. What's holy? We usually say set apart. Okay, and that's right on a level, but a deeper, more biblical definition, more full and well-rounded one is that which is wholeness or completeness. See, something just sitting off by its side, just being set apart by its side doesn't doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's what is the quality of it? The reason why God is set apart, the reason why he's the only truly holy one is because he's the only one that's whole and complete. Anything else outside of him by virtue is finite and limited, and it's got the opportunity to make a mistake or break or be broken. God isn't. He can't be. He's whole. He's complete, or he is holy. But what does he say? He says, be holy as I am holy. Right? When the holy one, when the wholeness comes towards that which is broken, it brings that into completion and it makes it holy. Righteousness. Righteousness. Righteousness, we say, right standing with God. Again, not wrong. That's right. We're in right standing. But then the next question is, how do you know if you're in right standing with God? And the core that righteousness is trying to get at is how is your relationship to God's word? That's what righteousness is about. Because again, God gives purpose by his word. He gives identity by his word. So your orientation to the word, whether you're listening or not, whether you're obedient or not, will determine whether or not you are righteous. So if you're listening and you're doing to the best of your ability, then you're righteous. If you err and you're outside the covenant, then you're unrighteous. So as you read through the stories and you get to places where it says Noah or Joseph or Mary, that they're righteous, it doesn't mean that they're perfect because no one's perfect. Scripture says all fall short. There's none good. No, not one. Our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. Our ability to live faithfully to his word is incomplete. But... Praise God, we are covered in what? The righteousness of Christ. His righteousness. His ability to live faithfully to the word. So there's a connection there with this. Let me give you a fun verse here so you have a touch point. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Famous section known for the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one in verse 4. But in verse 20 says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we, are Pharaoh, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us up out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good 
always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he had commanded us. So he gives them how to do it. He says, you keep falling, so I'm going to set up the sacrificial system. I want you to do it because it's an act of worship to me. And when you're obedient to, to listen and do it, you show yourself to be righteous. It doesn't have to do with perfect. It has to do with are you in alignment with God's word. Finally, good. The word good is important. It's a key biblical term. Good has to do with God's purposes and identity being established. So we said in the beginning, when he's, he's speaking things into being, he will assess it and he will look at it and he will declare it good. If you were to add up the times that he actually declares something good, there are seven times within Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 31. And God saw it and it was good. It was good. Now, it says something about the way he makes them. Because he is good and he is whole and he is complete, he operates out of his being and who he is. He's either good or he's not good. There's this connection between actions and being. Oops. Okay. So your being will determine the actions that are manifested, and the manifested actions confirm who you are in your being. Jesus will say this, a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit, or no fruit, depending on the context there, right? The quality of the tree will determine what's coming out of it. And so actions always trump words. Anybody can say anything. You say, oh, I believe in the Lord. Oh, I believe this. I believe that. Whatever. What fruit is coming out? Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit, not by the words that come out of the mouth. Beware of false prophets. You'll know them by the fruit they're producing. Because they can say anything all day long. Oh, I love you. I care for you. I'll protect you or whatnot. What's coming out? What's coming out? So the fact that God, when he's making things, he makes the light, he makes the land, he's making the water, he's making everything, and then he declares it, searches it, and tries it, and it is good. He slaps that, that name on it. It's good. It means it will fulfill the purposes that he has brought it into being. So if God makes something good and it results in an action, it speaks to his, his character, his being. He is good. You see, a not good God cannot make something good. And a good God cannot make something not good. So it confirms who he is. And this becomes a theme that goes all throughout Scripture. So God does it that way in the beginning. Genesis chapter 4, you get to Cain and Abel. Cain brings a a wrong sacrifice to God. Now here, okay, so this is a biblical interpretation. Why was Cain's offering not accepted? There's a popular Christianese answer, and it's wrong all the time. Okay, it's not what he asked for, but how do we know what he asked for? Because we don't get part of the story, right? We, We assume that they're told something, they know something, and it's supposed to come out of their relationship with God. Now, we don't get the full story, but you can tell the detail. Here's the overly spiritualized answer. Most people say, because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. There's nothing in the text to that point that tells us he required a blood sacrifice. That's what we know because we've read all the scripture. We get the testimony and we look back on it. See, that's reading into the text. There's a key pivotal point in Genesis chapter 3. Once sin is in the world, God starts laying out punishments. There's There's only one curse that comes upon an entity, and that comes upon the serpent because of what he did. He said, cursed are you above all, you're going to go on your belly. Okay, boom, you're cursed. Now he turns to the woman and he says, now there's going to be increased pain in childbearing. Now that's interesting because it's increased pain, not I'm going to introduce pain. That's a whole other theological topic. So uh, it's going to be increased pain. And then for Adam, there, w- what was Adam's punishment? The land was going to be what? There was a curse upon the ground. Thorns and thistles it'll produce for you. Now now in toil, you're going to be working the land. What does Cain bring to God? An offering of the ground. He brings God a cursed offering. I, said, I, I, I can't take that. It's cursed. You know what, what I just told you? There's a curse upon the land. You cannot give me a cursed offering. So he doesn't accept it. Cain gets angry. And God says something specific. He goes, why is your face fallen? Did you not know that if you did, and depending on the translation, it might say, well, the Hebrew word is good. Did you not know that if you did good, you would have been accepted in my sight? If you did what? The purposes that I've told you to do. 
do those things. If we were to jump ahead in the story and get to Psalm 37, verse 3, it says, do good. Isaiah chapter 1, God says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Do justice, do righteousness, peace, mercy, love people. Do those things because you're not doing them. Micah 6, 8. Make sure you always know Micah 6, 8. Underline that, highlight it, keep it, make that your life verse. God has told you, oh man, what is good. Three things. Three, isn't that interesting? Three is complete. Three is complete. He completely, it is completely summed up in these three statements. He has told you, oh man, what is good. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with God. That is goodness in his sight. That's how you do it. You do justice. You're going to treat people well. And you're going to love kindness. And you're walking humbly with him. They're all united because you're walking with him. You're being modeled into him. You're going to do justice, loving God, loving your neighbor. It's all balanced out. And then you jump into Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter's preaching at Cornelius' house. And he says something interesting. You know this Jesus of Nazareth, who was anointed or filled with the Holy Spirit, went about doing good and healing and doing so on and so forth. He didn't say he went around doing miracles although that's a good thing. He said he went about doing good. What did Jesus do? He was establishing purpose and identity everywhere he went in people's lives. Why did he do it? Because his father did it. In the beginning, his father did things that were good, like father, like son, like father, like son. And if you come into the family, what are you expected to do? (coughs) Ephesians chapter two, Paul says what? That God created for us in advance good works that we should walk in them. So this idea of goodness, purpose, identity, purpose, identity. Where are we at? 203. Okay. We're moving along here. You guys all right? Okay, good. Number six, context. Keep things in context. Oh my goodness. People, this is a big one. People take things out of context all the time. They make things say the things they don't say and they read into things. What did Adam and his wife eat in the garden? We say, oh, it's an apple. Scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't tell us that. It just says they ate of the fruit of the tree. Uh, what did Paul fall off of when he was on his, the road to Damascus? We'll say he fell off a donkey, fell off a horse. Scripture doesn't say that. All it says is that he fell down. For all we know, he could have been walking. The power of God shows up and, you know, he's just laying prostrate on the ground. Um, how about taking out of context? say this one all the time. And this one bothers me. This happens from the pulpit all the time. I got the point now that the students get all frustrated. They go, Professor Sam, someone said this one. God will throw all of our, our, our sins into the sea of, we say, forgetfulness. That's not what Micah 7.19 says. It says he will throw them into the depths of the sea. And that's a, it's a theological issue that we're dealing with. I said, if you don't interpret it correctly, it changes your theology. The reality is God God can't forget anything. Forgetting has to do with a lack. It has to do with limitation. It has to do with finiteness. We forget things, right? We should have held on to it, but we get older. Oh, lapse. Oh, went somewhere. I don't know where it went. God doesn't forget anything. How does scripture say it? He says, I will remember your sins no more. Now that's a much more deep and profound statement right there. Because he knows it. It's in the vault. He can't not do anything with it. But he doesn't go back into the vault and remember it again. He won't do that. He's promised that that's locked away. That's fascinating thought. Because we, we talk about how God forgets all these things, but yet we want to stand before his presence one day and then we want him to remember everything. I want the reward. So we expect him to remember at that point, but then we want to forget all the bad stuff. It's just a theological thing to think about. So context, let's keep things in context. Number seven, signs and symbols. As you're reading, look for signs and look for symbols. Signs have to do with actions. Symbols have to do with objects. So a sign is an action of God that he's at work, he's doing things, he's moving, he's speaking. He's trying to teach us things through the actions that he's doing. A symbol, which is connected but different, is an object. It's an object that has embedded meaning to it. So if you look at the cross, the cross is a symbol. It's an object, and it has meaning to it about what it represents. But if you talk about the cross 
and the action of Jesus being put to death, that is a sign. That's an action of God. Something is happening in the process there. One of my favorite ones is uh, baptism. And this, this relationship that God has with water, it's actually just fascinating to me. It's really funny when you look throughout scripture, God and water all the time. He knows that water is a problem for us. So when you get in the creation narrative and God creates the light because we need light for other things to happen, he starts, he looks at it, he says, that's good. He starts declaring all things good in the creation narrative except for water. Why is water a problem? Well, we can benefit from light. We can benefit from water in the sense that, you know, we are going to need it to drink. But it creates a hindrance for us because we need dry land. So what does God do in the beginning? He separates the waters from the water so that dry land can be there and that we can have a place to live and exist and have the authority he wants to give us. Okay, it's foreshadowing because God's not done splitting water. You see that he likes to do that a lot because he's taking the people out of Egypt. And what happens? They run smack dab into water. He's trying to get them to purpose, but there's something in front of their purpose. So he'll do what? He will split the water and allow them to go across. But he's not done there because that generation dies off because they're unfaithful. He raises up another one and he's trying to get them into the promised land. And what do they run into? They run into the Jordan, overflowing at flood season. And so God has to split the water again to get them to go through. And so this picture that he does again and again and again and again is showing us something. He wants us to see what water represents, that it can be a hindrance to us, but that he'll also work with it. And it's used in the context in a picture of cleansing, purification. The Holy Spirit's always associated with water. Lots of things that Jesus says he is. I'm the bread, I'm the light, I'm the vine, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He never once says he's a water. He's associated to the water. He'll tell the woman at the well in Samaria, he'll say, I can give you some water to drink. Where's it coming from? It's coming from the spirit of God that's bringing that life to her. And then he'll say in John chapter seven, is anyone thirsty? Why don't you come to me? I can hook you up with a source. Guess what? Out of your heart will rush forth rivers of living water. This he said of the spirit who was to come, but hadn't been given yet because he hadn't been glorified yet. So the spirit is always associated with water. And the spirit is about what? He's about purging, cleansing, washing. If you know that, it causes you to look at the flood story differently. Why? Because the world was corrupted. The thoughts and and everything, the intention of man's heart was evil continually. So God sends a flood. Why? He's baptizing the world. He's cleansing the world and getting it set right again so then he can have Noah re-pick up the charge that he gave to Adam in the beginning. And then you read later on, Paul will speak of when the Hebrews were going through the Red Sea. He says something really interesting. He says they were baptized into Moses, baptized into the cloud, baptized through the water. It's a picture because they obviously didn't stop at the Red Sea and, okay, I'm getting dunked. I'm getting baptized in that sense. But they went through the water. It's a picture. Jesus comes. Where does he get the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? Oh, at the Jordan. Interesting there. Interesting. How about numbers? Numbers are important. Numbers are important. They point out things. Now, we want to be really careful. We don't want to go overboard. We don't want to turn it into numerology, where people are multiplying this times this times this equals this, and these letters add up to all this stuff. That gets a bit far. But you want to look at numbers have meaning. Because God creates a world in which there's time and space that you can use numbers to measure things. That's how the ancient world did. They saw things. One, one, wholeness, absolute unity. Two, you need, it's the number of testimony or witness. You need at least two witnesses for things. Three, complete. Now watch this. This is fascinating. We know that God is what? One. He's one essence, but he's three people, right? So you got the Father, you got the Son, you got the Holy Spirit. Okay, one essence, three people. But notice, God, everything he structures goes back to him and who he is. If you need two to have an appropriate testimony or witness, notice the Father can do something and the Son and the Spirit can testify. The Son can do something, the Father and the Spirit can testify. The Spirit could do something, the Father and the Son can testify. So anything He requires of us, it's already set up because of who He is. It's fascinating. Uh, Four is usually a number related to the earth. Five, uh, in Western thought, we talk about grace. But if you're Jewish, you're thinking Pentateuch. You're thinking the first five books. 
Six, the number of man. Isn't this interesting? Six, six, six. Six, six, six. The number of the beast took a number of man and replicated it three times. Almost a false trinity. Or man tries to make an identity in ourselves and try to be like God through three sixes. Very interesting. Seven, the number of perfection. Ten usually has to do with structure or governance. Twelve, um, delegation. We know the twelve tribes. We know the twelve disciples. We know the apostles. Lots of twelves. Lots of twelves. Uh, names. Names are really, really important. Always look at names. Don't just take the name and just, just blow past it, but see what the name means. Names are important in this culture, but even more so maybe in that culture than they are today. How many people do you know that are named Adolf today? No, shame, absolute shame. There's just shame upon that name. You, you don't name someone Adolf because of what he did. You want to give someone a strong name, right? That's why parents spend so much time pouring over books and praying and thinking if we're believers, we want a good biblical name. Why do we want that? We're trying to find something honorable, something of integrity and character and strength. Something speaking into their destiny, who they are, what they're going to be. So Jesus, his name means salvation. He's named for his vocation, what he does. Um, Anytime that you have a name ending in I-A-H, like Isaiah, or L, Nathaniel, has to do with God's name. I-A-H is a shortened form, or how we would spell Yah, Yahweh. L is the word for God. So Nathaniel, Natan is gave, and L is God. God gave. God gave. So uh, names there. Not only just people, but also places. So Bethlehem is what? House of bread. Interesting. House of bread. And Jesus came from Bethlehem. So the bread comes from the house of bread. We've got some association there. Plays on words. Really neat connections. Bethany. Bethany. House of affliction. House of suffering. That's where Lazarus lived. And Bethany, just removed, just outside the city of Jerusalem. Why? Downwind. Most scholars believe that it was a leper colony. They believe that Lazarus could have been a leper, and that's actually what he died from. Which would explain why Mary and Martha aren't in more stories and why they're not around him ministering, because they were at home taking care of their family, their dad and their brother, and they were outcasts there outside the city. Fun, interesting one. When the people are trying to get Jesus crucified... They bring him before Pilate, and he says, wait, you guys have a custom that I can release somebody to you at feast time. So we'll, we'll release one. Who do you want? Do you want Jesus, or do you want Barabbas? They say, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Kill Jesus, take Barabbas. What's interesting, if you break Barabbas' name down, it's Bar and Abbas. Bar is son of Abba. We should know Abba, right? Father. Barabbas' name means son of the father. Two sons of the father, the people got the wrong one. The original languages, Greek and Hebrew. Greek and Hebrew. Oh, we only got about four minutes left. Original languages. If you get into the Greek, and this is a more of an advanced one, but if you get there one day, words are more rich and just multifaceted in the original languages than they are in our language. Greek has four words for love. We got agape, which we all know, usually unconditional love, phileo, friendship love, eros, erotic love, storge, like a deep affection, friendship, like family connection love. If you look in the Greek with the conversation that Peter and Jesus are having upon his resurrection, they have this conversation. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? On the third time, Peter gets angry. And then you think, wait, okay, if you just read that on the surface in the English, you go, what's Peter's problem? Here's Jesus offering him love and and this this relationship, and he's freaking out. Why is he freaking out? In the Greek, they're having two totally different conversations. Jesus comes up and says, do you love me unconditionally? Peter says, well, I love you as a friend. Jesus says, do you love me unconditionally? I love you as a friend. On the third time, Jesus changes his statement and his word, and he says, well, let me ask you this, Peter. Third time. Completely. It's the last time I'm going to ask you. It's the third time. Do you love me as a friend? Wait. 
Well, what would you do? Jesus just said, you've been asking me two times unconditionally. I've been telling you a friend, and now you ask me if I love you as a friend. Yes, I told you already. I love you as a friend. Now, some people, they want to throw Peter under the bus as though he's stupid. Yeah, he's just a, 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 an ignorant fisherman. It couldn't be anything further from the truth. He's contending for something specific. He's fighting for something. He's pressing for something. Because what did he just do days before? He denied Christ three times. So Jesus is restoring him three times. But Jesus is restoring him in a very specific way. And he's allowing Peter to determine the context of the relationship they're going to have. Because what did he say at the Last Supper that was so dynamic to them? You call me master. And you're right, because technically I am that. However, if you have a master-servant relationship, the servants don't know what the master is doing. I'm changing our relationship, and I now call you friends. So you got to see what friend meant in that culture. And those that are staying in the next half, we can get into some of the stuff. And so Jesus just radically changed the dynamics of the relationship and allows them into intimacy to know the Father's heart and what the plans are. And what does he do? He said, I will go to the grave with you. I don't care if everyone else denies you. Jesus, I'm here. Just an hour later, I don't know him. Nope, don't know him. Don't know him. No, no, I know you. Yeah, I saw you with, I don't know what you're talking about. To the third time, scripture says he calls down a curse upon himself because he's that intensified that he doesn't know him. And so in his thinking as a Jewish man, he thinks he has cut himself off completely. That he's completely denied Christ. The accounts say that Jesus will tell them, when you go back to restore the other disciples, go get Peter too. The text is really clear that Peter doesn't see himself as connected anymore. So Jesus is reconnecting him, but he's allowing him to press in for more. So let's ask ourselves the same question. Now that we know what the text is saying, see, here's the practical application. How does this work for us today? Would you want the unconditional love of God? Sure, there's nothing wrong with that. Or do you want to know that you have the intimate right to call him Daddy, Abba, Papa? He can let you know what he's up to. And he wants to include you in that. So there's nothing wrong with the agape, but they're just different. It's like a diamond again. It just reflects light differently depending on how you shed, shed that love. All that. Oh, it's like 218. We're like up on this. All right, the last one I'll carry just for your notes and purposes. Um, well, a couple. Know the Jewish culture. Learn the culture. For those that are staying on, we're actually going to get into the culture here in part two. Uh, connected to that. Know the Exodus story. Everything flows out of the Exodus story. Everything about who Jesus is, what he's doing, the meaning of the feasts, the feasts and the festivals, all that stuff came out of and developed out of the Exodus account. So everything is Jesus is doing, every bit of ministry when he's healing people, you'd be amazed at how many touch points there are with the Exodus. Okay, well that was a power-packed hour. You guys blessed? Lord, bless them. May they be great interpreters as they go forward in Jesus' name. Amen.